Hello world and welcome to John Richardson and the Future Notes, the book of revelations. This week we will be discussing the future of trust and I trust that I am joined as ever by Mark Stevenson. Hello. Do you see I let you go first so you're not intimidated by Ed's multilingual skills? Yeah, it's great. And I've bought Ed some time. Hello Ed. Ciao, ciao. Ciao amigo. Um, Amigo's not Italian either. I've got, I've got two <laughs> words in and already shown myself up. Um, how are you both? Blooming. Blooming. Absolutely blooming. Mike, uh, Mark? How? <laughs> 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 oh, again? Bingy. How am I? I was, really, I, was, I was in a pretty good mood up until about then when you yeah. got my name wrong again. <laughs> it doesn't count, though. When I get it wrong and I use the name of our producer, Michael, I'm, I'm sort of right in a way. Right. So, so basically, you see... Ed, me, and Michael as essentially this amorphous blob that you broadcast with. I see everybody as mate. Aww. You're all just mate, right? So uh, we've had uh, an email in from Mark. Uh, Mark says, just wanted to say I love the show. That's the way to start any of your emails to us, by the way, because we love a bit of praise. Uh, can't wait for each new episode. I deliver for Sainsbury's. So there's a few times in my day where I'm driving for 30 to 60 minutes and the podcast helps. Get me through the boredom with laughter and discussing, albeit you can't hear me. That's a lovely thought, isn't it? That while while the podcasts are going out, people are engaging in conversation with us, just chatting away. Mm. That's a first um, sign of madness, isn't it? Oh, that's interesting. Just engaging in a conversation with a podcast. Yeah, I think so. But if you're, I don't, I don't want to judge Mark by my own shitty standards, but if you're driving for 30, 60 minutes, I'd say a meaningful, albeit one-way conversation with a podcast is better than a diatribe of filth and invective aimed at other drivers, which is what <laughs> I would be doing if I weren't listening to a podcast. <laughs> um, he says, and this leads to our uh, trivial question today to get to know Mark and Ed a little better. He says, I'm wondering if you could do one on the future of gaming. I'm a huge gamer, so I'd be interested to hear you guys discuss it. And that led me to want to ask Mark and Ed, do either of you game? Have you ever gamed? What What's the best game you've ever played? Oh my god, I don't think I've, I don't think I've really played many computer games since Space Invaders. Um, incredibly, incredibly disconnected from that entire gaming world. I mean, the, the closest I come is like discussions about Fortnite with my teenage nephew, um, which again tend to go slightly over my head. And then James Plunkett mentioned. Um, in an article he wrote, you know, when we were interviewing him the other week, uh, the sort of metaverse um, site, and there was, he sent a link to an article about cyberkongs, and I started reading it, and I realised I'm just too old for this shit. I just I couldn't get my head around it. I was just <laughs> looking at it, going, "Oh my god, there is an entire alternative universe being built, and I just want to go for a walk along the river." Yeah, I, I, I when I before children, I would occasionally uh, game a little bit, but then I realised it was just this massive sink of time. And um, because what you know, and uh, Jamie Gonigle talks about this very well in her book Reality is Broken about how you can use the way we design games to design public services to get people to engage with them more. But you know, the, the great thing about games is if they're designed well, they're just difficult enough to keep you interested, but not so difficult that you get bored. I would have thought prog rock was a massive sink of time. <laughs> what is it? Or what is it? 
I was trying to make a serious <laughs> point, and every time John gets my name wrong, you take a pop at prog rock. I can hardly get into an episode these days without. This is like a game. This podcast is a bit like a game, isn't it? You know, you set me all these challenges, you know, by being rude and horrible to me, but enough that I feel I can overcome them. You know, not so difficult that I get bored and tell you all to fuck off. <laughs> For me, I think games are very, very interesting, but they're just such a sink of time because they're so well designed that there's no way you want to go down that rabbit hole, certainly as a person with two children. Who's 50? Oh, that was the worst one of all. That was the deepest cut of all, that one. <laughs> well, I'm not far behind him. I've got so much on, I don't want to get into any computer games. And you're old. That's what I heard then. You old fart. <laughs> Trying to bend your arthritic fingers around the controller. <laughs> Playing Grand Theft Auto. I just wanted to go to the shops. Now I'm involved in a drag heist. I only needed a loaf of bread. <laughs> talking about uh, talking about bending your arthritic fingers around a joystick. How's the dating going, Ed? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that just about sums it up. Well, I'm pleased to have asked the question, Mark. I, I, I see. I find a great comfort in knowing that there's that um, sink of time, as you put it, ready to open up. Because there will come a time in my life when. My child is older and I'm not so in demand anymore. And the knowledge that whilst we are saving the world with this podcast, which is what we're undoubtedly doing, gaming is just advancing at such a pace. It's becoming so intricate and detailed and and indeed more social than it used to be because you can play online with other people. I am very determined to keep my gaming skills up just enough that when I do slow down with work, I'm capable of getting into those games. Because when I do get into one, they're just exquisite. I mean, they're works of art now, aren't they, games? Yeah, but can I also suggest another option, Mm. which is the pub? Oh, I'll still come to the pub, mate. Okay. I'll come to the pub until closing time, and I'll be drinking the 2 to 3% session beer, which we have lobbied for on this podcast, so that when I get home at 11, 11.30, I can game until 4 o'clock in the morning and sleep till lunchtime. And that yeah. sounds like a <laughs> wonderful time. I mean, it strikes me there's something wrong in the universe, because what we've got here is a man who says he basically wants to go to the pub, drink enough so he can game all night, who's actually married to a beautiful and intelligent woman. And we've got Ed, on the other hand, who doesn't game and is trying to save the planet and is unfortunately single. There's something wrong there, I think, in the world. If you listen very carefully, uh, Derek, what's your name, Phil? (laughs) Um, You will find I made it clear that this was a plan for the future. And as we all know, as you correctly point out, that my wife is beautiful and intelligent. She will not be with me in the future. So this is very much when she has her own wake-up call. (laughs) Right. We're here to discuss trust, which um, seeing the note on the discussion we're about to have is a a much more nuanced and wide-ranging conversation than I was expecting. We had an email this week from a listener who said, I've listened to all your podcasts. I enjoyed them. I'm especially enjoying Series 3 because of your wonderful guests, which is an endorsement of the direction the podcast is going. And I'm pleased to reveal we have a wonderful guest with us today. It's a bit of a kick in the teeth for Mark Ed and myself. Um, but <laughs> I'm delighted to say we're joined by an expert in the field of trust, Rachel Botsman. And I will hand over to you, Ed, to tell us a bit more about her. So I first came across Rachel's work over a decade ago through her first book on collaborative consumption and the sharing economy. Um, What's Mine is Yours? Uh, It's a rollickingly great and highly prescient read that showed us all there was a possible way out from the consumerist materialist excess and insane waste. And the book highlighted what were then emerging businesses and platforms like Zipcar, Etsy and Freecycle were household names today. 
Uh, I then saw Rachel speak at a crowd sustainability event in London around the launch of her second book, Who Can You Trust?, which we'll dig into today, and was blown away by the brilliant clarity she brings to her cogent analyses, the way she articulates simple but enormously powerful truths that belie the deep thinking and research that underpins them. She's also a lecturer at Oxford University, uh, nominated as one of the top 30 management gurus by Thinkers50, is one of the most influential voices on the in the UK on LinkedIn, and was honoured as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum. Uh, She's an ever-present voice of reason on trust issues across all sorts of media, from Wired to the Harvard Business Review, and her TED Talks have been viewed over 5 million times. And she also has a regular personal newsletter, Rethink, that has over 35,000 subscribers. So in answer to the rhetorical question her second book asks, who can you trust? The response is, of course, Rachel. You can definitely trust Rachel. Um, So Rachel, welcome, uh, and thank you for trusting us enough to be willing to come on the show. It's a pleasure, but actually you can trust me to do some things, but not other things, which is a really important question when it comes to trust. Oh, what can we not trust you to do? Oh, um, drive a car. I'm a really bad driver. I'm a really, uh, really bad driver. You're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, that's exactly like You and me both, Rachel. There's a recurrent theme on this show where Mark and John um, rip the piss out of my appalling driving, although it's usually to do with paperwork rather than actual skills. Yeah, I'm sure you didn't crash your car 20 minutes after your driving test, which is my claim to fame. So. <laughs> That's pretty quick. It's very good. <laughs> That's got to be some kind of record, isn't it? I th- I, my parents had to pick me up from the police station and they said, this isn't where you go when you pass your driving test because I teetotaled the car. Anyway, wow. I don't know why I'm starting on this note. Like, Actually, I realized I do something when someone establishes me as an expert and gives me a very kind intro. I tend to undermine my credibility, which I shouldn't do. So. Indeed, there's, in fact, there's that. Uh, I think there's that maximum. Isn't it? Is that um, you don't trust people who tell you that you can trust them? Yeah, you know? totally. I mean, I find that I get that when I at that point when somebody says to me, "Oh no, no, you can trust me," I'm always like, "Oh, or like I did right up until then." So actually, you're probably in a strange way by undermining your own credibility, allowing us to trust you even more. Yeah, well, any advert that has trust in it or brand that has trust in it, I wouldn't trust them. Oh, that's very interesting. That's interesting because I've just formed a company which has the word trust in the strap line. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rachel, you kind of know the score uh, of the way we like to run this podcast. So um, we work our way through the three questions. And the first one um, is obviously particularly opposite uh, when it seems that everyone from the prime minister down seems to be lying about a Christmas lockdown party at number 10 last year. So whilst people weren't able to see their poor loved ones uh, passing the threshold in hospitals in person, um, it seems that there are dozens of people enjoying cheese and wine at number 10. So in that Mm. context, which is obviously a pretty severe erosion of public trust in authority, um, how effed are we in the context of trust? I think we are effed in a... Oh, I can't even find the words. Um, F in, in the A is as bad in, as it gets. Yeah. <laughs> in our trust in institutions, in large institutions, and not in all leaders, but in the people that are meant to take care of us and make decisions that are in our best interests, whether that's financial interests or health interests. Um, I think that is in a complete state of crisis Um, And that is tied to our trust in information and a shared understanding of even what the truth is. So 
how can I even talk to my children about telling the truth when the prime minister thinks it's okay to lie about a Christmas party? Mm. Um, and so I think it's as much a trust crisis as a moral crisis and an integrity crisis. That's the part that always really gets to me. This specific issue I find really interesting because what I find interesting about Boris Johnson is that he wasn't elected as trustworthy. Everyone sort of knew going in that, I mean, it was well publicized, the the lies he told and the things he'd done wrong in the past. And we made a decision as a country based on other things we thought he'd do. So when you say the trust has eroded, do you mean in Boris as an individual, in the cabinet and the way they've handled the last couple of years, in the Conservative Party, in the British government, or just in democracy in general? How far does it go? Well, let's let's break that apart because I think Boris is interesting in that one of the mistakes that we make is we often conflate charisma for competence or even confidence with competence. Um, so when someone is overly confident, we see this not even with when we vote for, for leaders, but in interview situations, um, you can often pick a candidate just because they seem confident. Um, and I think this is really an issue with Johnson, that he is always looking for affirmation and he's looking to be liked through a sense of humor. That Now, that may make him a brilliant editor of, of a newspaper or a magazine where you're always looking for the headline, um, but it doesn't make you a great leader. So I think he is actually really interesting in terms of how easily our trust is manipulated. Um, and we can see this happening not just in the UK, but in other parts of the world. So we don't need to talk about Trump, but he's another flavor of this. Um, to answer your question, it really depends. It depends on your relationship to government. I think it depends on your background, your situation, your age, um, whether your distrust is in the people themselves, the party, or the wider system and institution and belief in democracy. So I wouldn't want to give a generalized answer because I, I think it really depends on where you're coming from and your relationship to power. Can I, can I give a generalized answer? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, because I wrote about um, uh, democracy in, in the second book. And one of the things you found there was there was a general pattern when it came to government that people sort of trusted the idea of democracy. So they liked the concept, but they tended to trust the, the constitution if they had one slightly less than the idea. And then they trusted the parliament slightly less than the constitution. And they just trusted the political parties. Sorry, sorry, the government of the day slightly less than the parliament. And then they trusted the political party slightly less than the idea of governments, which are part of it. And then they trusted the individuals in that party less than the party that they represented. So it's almost like they liked the idea of democracy, but when it came down to the actual workings of it, um, it, it and the people involved, it that it got less and less as you came as it came closer and closer to you. So conceptually, you trust it, but when it's actually manifested, you think, "God, oh, this is a terrible shit show," and he's an idiot. That's that's really interesting because the way trust often functions is a bit like an onion. So the concept on the or the idea on the outside we can sort of have confidence or faith in that. But as you start to peel back the layers, um, to sort of the inner workings that really impact your daily life, we have less trust in them. So is trust a bit like a sausage? Like you, 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 <laughs> might, you might quite like the taste of it in some ways, but when you look inside it, you think, oh no, that's not very good. 
I've never, never compared trust. <laughs> I, I can see teaching my students, trust is like a sausage. <laughs> I think trust is more like energy than a sausage. <laughs> I mean, I think it's really important actually because a trust is not a physical object. A sausage is a physical object. Um, but it's also because it's, in all seriousness, it's because it's fluid, right? And it's it's constantly changing form. So I think trust is is more fickle. It's not something that you sort of put in a bank and it's an asset that's stored. It, it fluctuates and changes and flows depending on what's going on in the world, what's going on in your life, how you woke up that day. So this is why I always really struggle when people go, oh, I've built trust, right? Like it's in some kind of bank. Trust doesn't work like that way. So, so it's, not, it's not quite a sausage, but more like energy. Mm. I was really interested because you go back to like the origins of the word trust. It actually comes from the old Norse, trausta. Uh, which which means strength, which is which is quite apt, I think, because you obviously describe um, trust as a confident relationship with the unknown, and so it, it does bring that strength when it's there, doesn't it? Whether it's a sausage or an onion. Well, that's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. <laughs> um, I think this the relationship between trust and the truth is we can talk about that all day, but I do think this idea of trust being confident relationship with the unknown is so powerful when you start to realize how much of your life is really dependent on that relationship. And that if you need to know everything and you can't um, sort of have confidence in systems and information where you don't know the ins and outs of how they work, life is going to become very complicated and also sort of contracted because the people you trust will shrink. And we're seeing that actually, that's one of the results of the pandemic is we're seeing sort of the rise of local trust um, and sort of less trust in big global things that are happening at scale, which is a natural response to uncertainty. That's, I mean, that's what the Edelman Trust Barometer demonstrates, doesn't it? I mean, I, I pulled this quote out from their 2021 um, analysis. It said, an epidemic of misinformation and widespread mistrust of societal institutions and leaders around the world. Um, adding to this, a failing trust ecosystem unable to confront the rampant infodemic which leaves the four institutions, business, government, non-governmental organisations and the media in an environment of information bankruptcy and a, with a mandate to rebuild trust and chart a new path forward. Um, I mean, you know, and that's pretty a pretty damning analysis, isn't it? And to add on to that, of course, Edelman is a, basically a large PR company. And if you look at some of the clients they represent, they're trying to build trust in people that, you know, we don't particularly like. So there's almost a kind of like an extra layer of the people are telling us that trust is, is broken are also involved in, uh, in, in breaking it. I don't t entirely trust that barometer. I mean, I think we have to remember they are a very large global PR and communications agency with, with clients and an agenda. And this, this is really, really important because something I use in my own life to guide my decisions and where I get information from and who I choose to trust is I look very closely at their intentions. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I ask this question over and over and over again, are your intentions aligned with mine? And if there is misalignment there, then you should really slow down and ask whether you, you trust that person or that piece of information. I did wonder that when I read it, because they, they they highlighted business as not only the most trusted institution, yeah. uh, but also the only institution seen as both ethical and competent. And when I read that, I thought, well, <laughs> hang on, is there an agenda here that, you know, that the Edelman Trust Barometer just happens to bring out business, which is primarily their clients, as the most trusted institution globally? 
And, and this might explain the thing you've just said there about the intentions, Rachel, might explain that how we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, um, governments kind of enjoyed a kind of a trust boost in a way in that people thought, well, you know, clearly this is a big thing, we need government to help us. But as they kind of dealt with it sort of to varying degrees of success or otherwise, um, our trust kind of just eroded as we realised that, you know, the intentions of the government were perhaps not the intentions of us. I mean, one—I mean, in my dealings, for instance, with the cabinet office, and I've, I've found that basically what they've done is they've governed the pandemic for people who sound and look a bit like them, which is essentially posh people from private schools, and cannot really understand or understand, you know, the, the intentions of of the rest of us, and and therefore the, suddenly you see this mass disconnect to the extent that you know the British Medical Journal described our government's response to um, to the pandemic as social murder in the fact that twice mm. as many civilians have been killed in the pandemic than were killed in the Second World War. It's really interesting. So at the start of a crisis, it could be a war, it could be a pandemic. They call it the the flag rallying effect. So what we just, a human response is we look up, right? We look up to authority and we rally around quite literally a flag or a leader. And so if you look at um, sort of what happened to trust in those first few months, leaders see a natural bump and then they're like, oh, I'm managing this really well, right? Like it's sort of this uh, confidence they get. Um, and then that unravels over time, uh, not in all countries, right? So it's really interesting. And I'm not just saying this because I'm a woman, but if you look at people like Jacinta Ardern in New Zealand or even Angela Merkel, now I know Germany's not in a great place, but people still trust her as a, a leader. And the reason why is because they have a certain level of humility, um, so I define humility as a confident relationship with what we don't know. And if you, if you look at those two leaders, they will stand up and they say, you know, what? I do, I'm not an expert on that, or I don't have the information to give you an accurate answer, but I'm going to do everything in my power to get that information. So then when they do propose a policy or when they do give a solution, it, it feels like they're telling the truth. Um, people have more confidence in what they're saying because they're willing to admit when they don't know. Now, I don't think I have heard our prime minister, I don't think I've heard him once say that he doesn't know or he doesn't he doesn't have the answer to this because he's worried that's going to undermine his credibility. Mm. It's, it's very interesting, though, because I think with the pandemic, the way we think about trust or trustworthiness is, is both capability and character. And, you know, our government in the UK, they have suffered from capability problems are they competent to handle this? Uh, they are not reliable or consistent in the way that they've handled it. But there are also character issues. And I find the Hancock thing so interesting because everyone got fixated on the affair, which is a terrible thing. But I was bothered equally by the conflict of interest, right? And like, it's so interesting when it comes to trust that, you know, he, he hired someone um, that he was having an affair with that government was paying for, you know, the, all the stuff that is coming out around contracts and his sister. And like, for me, that's as much as an issue that he had an affair, which you could say is sort of on his personal terms, but he's a public figure. So Hancock, I think, is a real character crisis where you start to go, again, it comes back to integrity. I just, I don't believe in the integrity of these leaders that they represent my values and my interests. So it's 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 very complicated in terms of what's unraveled with our government and, and their leadership of the pandemic or lack of. Mm. 
coming away from politics then because uh, i think i it, uh, yeah i was explaining that i'm the layman in this podcast but i can understand why having seen the news over the last few years there would be a, a diminishing trust in government what are the other major areas in which you would say as a as a current society our level of trust is diminishing in i, I don't know companies or where else do we find a lack of trust so it's interesting because in other areas it's not that I hate to present this picture that trust in the world is in like this complete state of decline, right? Mm. Completely plummeting because what's actually happening more is that it's changing form. So um, banking is a really good example of this. Um, Do we trust traditional financial institutions? Have they covered from um, the great financial crisis? Um, No, um, because nothing's really changed in their structure, their incentives and to the public, their culture really. But are we starting to trust other forms of finance, even though it's early days and there are issues. So open banking, decentralized finance, cryptocurrencies, peer-to-peer banking, startups like Monzo and Revolut. Now, I'm not saying they don't have trust issues, but it's early signs of when trust starts to decline in a traditional institution, you start to see new forms and innovative forms of trust rising up, which can be a really good thing because it's a story of reinvention. Um, And I'm not just saying that to be optimistic. Um, Where else do we see a lack of trust? Uh, Again, it's it's sort of a two-sided coin, like the media is just a, a smorgasbord, right? So publications like the New York Times have never seen such high subscriptions, but do we trust what we read on social media, what's going on in those platforms? No. So it, it's not an easy, it's not a binary question to answer, if you see what I mean. And what are the, I, I sort of picture losing trust in, uh, it sounds like what you're saying, as you say, it's changing and it's that there are new things coming through, but what what a certain generation would understand as things they can trust, banking, the government, uh, old media, you know, newspapers. What are the consequences of losing trust in those? Is it purely a mental thing? Is it that it affects your mental health not to trust the world you're in? Or are there concrete and physical things that happen when you lose trust in these things? Oh, it's it's huge. It's immense. I mean, not all, but some of the anxiety we feel, um, the disruption, the change, um, sort of losing this anchor in this world, right? So if I compare this to my grandparents, who've now passed away, but... I remember as a child, right, they trusted, they were Jewish, they trusted their rabbi, they were on the local council, they watched the 6pm news, right, trust for them was quite simple. Um, And there were anchors in their life that if there was an issue, they would go to that person or they would know where to go for that source of information. So when we lose that anchor, and everything just becomes a mess, and there is no sort of new social safety net, it causes immense anxiety and uncertainty for many people and so what we start to do is we start to trust peers and influencers right so we'll go on instagram and trust something that you know a celebrity that we like says about vaccines and that's a problem in itself as well so when we don't know who to trust it creates an enormous vacuum in misinformation for other voices to rise up. And that can be a positive thing, but it also can lead to things like Trump and it can lead to things like Brexit because we have to trust someone. Life's, it's the social glue of our lives. So when that disappears, 
we feel really lost. Mm. In the in the book, I mean, you describe the three reasons that, that trust is collapsing. You know, you, and you talk about the inequality of accountability, which we've kind of sort of touched on. Certain folk getting punished for wrongdoing, while well, others completely get away with it. And whether that's a number ten Christmas party or a Barnard Castle eye test, you know, there's there's definitely a sense of people getting away with stuff that the rest of us are sort of co towing to. And, and then you talk about the twilight of elites and authority. You know, uh, and this digital age of flattened hierarchies as as you referenced you know eroding faith in experts um and then the segregated echo chambers that we're talking about in terms of our sort of cultural online ghettos but i'm really interested do you feel that's just intensified since you wrote the book because it's obviously four years would you add anything to that is there any new factors or is it still those three I was going to say, you remember the book better than I do. Like, <laughs> well, I only read it the, the last few days, so it's kind of fresh in the mind. <laughs> um, I think those factors have been amplified. And, um, you know, it's it's really interesting because as you're saying those, I, I think about myself and where I have a really strong reaction. And the one that always gets to me is the inequality of accountability, like different rules for different folks. That's the one that emotionally like some of the others I can process right but like that emotionally gets me makes me really mad that you think because you're in a position of power that you have different rules or the law doesn't apply to you um and I think you know if we look at sort of the trust crisis the government is now in over this Christmas party that's the real issue it's is the inequality of accountability so so to pull up on that i mean that's but that's kind of true isn't it whether we like it or not you know if you have a position of privilege or power it is a different rule for you and is that just part of the way society works or are there ways to to deal with that because you know, like if you look for instance at the recent climate change negotiations and the idea of the states that have been most affected by it are the states that didn't really cause it and they're asking for like help to mitigate and adapt and for reparations all the kind of stuff and and you know us in the west are generally dragging our feet on that going well i'm not sure we want to pay for the damage we've done because actually we we, we don't have to in, in a way or we you know we don't you know that same sort of thing you know even at um, an absolute macro level a national level that inequality of accountability seems to be almost baked into the human condition or is that uh, some kind of systemic organizational failure that we can deal with i refuse to accept that has to be the way particularly when it comes to people's lives and health so um i don't want to keep going back to the pandemic but it is so relevant when you see leaders just break the rules that they've imposed on other people you know i was thinking when I was reading that news, like I couldn't go to my aunt's funeral, but you're having a drink and a jolly, right? Like we cannot accept a society that lives by that standard. There has to be a different way. We, we, we have a responsibility to create leaders that want to go. And my, this is my big fear. As we see leaders that we don't trust, as, as government becomes more and more tainted by distrust, what we see around distrust is, is three phases. We see, um, defensiveness, disengagement, and then disenchantment. And I fear that we've entered that stage of disenchantment. So are there enough people now in the world, brilliant people going, oh, actually, I want to go into government and politics. That, that's my aspiration. You know, so how are we going to reinvent the system when the system's so distrusting, we have so much distrust of it that it's not even attracting the right people. And that's the cycle I think we need to, to, to break is, is who is going into government at what level and how do we break this up that it is an old boys and white male 
largely white male club. I mean, is it also just that, you know, when, when you say go into government, you know, the structures of government that we use are themselves 200, 300 years old. So it, it's not just about who's going into it, but maybe it's about the way it's it's organised. And that's even a more intractable problem because in that, even if you've got good people, you know, in inverted commas, going into the into government, you've still got a system of government that's 200, 300 years old. And that institutional memory and the way it works and the assumptions that are built into its procedures and software and all that kind of stuff would still cause a kind of inequality of uh, accountability. Totally. I mean, one of my favorite quotes of all time is by a writer called Clay Shirky, and he says, institutions will always try to preserve the problem to which they are the solution. <laughs> and, you know, I see that everywhere not just in, in government, in, in all different kinds of institutions, that, you know, the fear of irrelevance and how that pervades um, and stops cultures from changing, I think, is a huge problem. I'm an optimist, by the way, so I, I feel like... <laughs> yeah, I mean, that reminds me of um, George Bernard Shaw's famous quote, you know, a government that robs Peter to pay Paul can always um, rely on the support of Paul. <laughs> <laughs> to reassure you that we do, we make a point of ending this podcast with concrete um, things that are happening and that we can be part of to change. We just, we really make the listener earn it by sitting through some of the frank and frankly depressing parts of the conversation <laughs> up there. So there will be a happy ending. Uh, it will just come right at the end. Yeah. And, and, and Rachel, it's your job to obviously give us that. We, you know, you're the expert. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. so, you know, just uh, put a few ideas down. <laughs> but there may be an optimism here because it feels like we've moved gradually rather than ask the question. We've moved into why has this happened in terms of some of the questions we're asking. And what I'm getting the impression from you Rachel is that it hasn't actually been a, a gradual erosion there is no great schism that's happened and we aren't in a, a pit of despair in terms of trust it's just that society has changed in a number of ways and we haven't adapted our trust in certain things to match yet is that fair yes but no in that I think we cannot and it feels so cliche to say but underestimate the impact of technology because what started as sort of misinformation has become misperception. And now we live in this world of sort of illusionary truth. And that's the heart of so many problems. So technology, you know, from social media, from the smartphone, from the speed of information, you know, good trust decisions, they require actually some friction. They require us to slow down and to think about, you know, is this person, is this piece of information, are they worthy of my trust? And so that's, the speed and the scale that information moves, that's the part that has radically changed over the last 20 years. Yeah, and I, I, I echoed that point. I mean, I think about this a lot. And, you know, it used to be, like I said, if we say the old world, of course, there's no old world, a new world. But, you know, if we go back, say, 50 years, it was that, you know, traditionally, you know, our media and our politics, you know, our prejudices were sold too, in that we would buy the newspaper that agreed with us or we would vote for the um, the political party that kind of, you know, agree with our financial and emotional prejudices. But but now what seems to happen is that it's not that our prejudices are sold too, but our prejudices are for sale, for mm. sale to the highest bidder in order to weaponize them. And then we have this other problem that the government that tries to legislate against, say, social media by assuming it's a broadcaster or a publisher. And it's not really. They're more like an extractive industry, which is taking information out. If information is the new oil, then, and therefore they probably should be legislated in that way. And, um, you know, it, I think it's Max Planck that said that um, science advances one funeral at a time. And maybe we just can't legislate for this stuff because the people who've got to legislate it grew up in too much in the old world. And, and we talked to James Plunkett on the show about that very problem. He says, you know, we're just not 
understanding how to legislate for these things because we're trying to legislate for them as if they were something from the old world where it's actually you know google and uh and facebook they're not corporations really they're kind of like these meta organizations that need some kind of new wholesale approach it's such an astute point and you know all these conversations i had because my my fascination with this didn't start with bad driving. It started with the sharing economy, right? Like really understanding how trust works in platforms and marketplaces, whether that's dating sites like Tinder or Airbnb or Uber, whatever it may be. So I remember in the early days of talking to regulators about the problems that were starting to emerge on these platforms that they were putting them in traditional frames of reference, right? So uh, how do you regulate a taxi company? And then how do you apply that to Uber? How do you regulate the hotel industry? How do you apply that to Airbnb? And we see this all the time. So we've got two problems. We've got like institutions trying to adapt to a whole new world of trust, which is, is hugely complicated. And then we've got these new forms of trust, what I call distributed trust, that don't have these social safety nets where traditional regulation and the law doesn't apply to them. And then we try to take the old world and impose it in a top-down way on this new world. And that's that's where the problems really arise. Now that is starting to change. Like we're starting to see like new forms of regulation, new forms of thinking, but it's it's still sort of in the minority. Are we still exposed to also the challenge of having to navigate fake trust as well i mean again in the book you talk about you know people gaming reputations like individually and for corporates you know and even on the dark web you know needing to have sort of fake positive reviews when you try and sell weapons or drugs to people uh <laughs> in the illegal black market online i mean how, how do we navigate that fake trust is is that going to be increasingly on the rise how do we tell the difference between what is what is authentic trust and what might be fabricated so can I ask what what when you say fake trust what do you what do you understand by that well i mean when, when the gaming of people's reputations you know where you're buying fake reviews or you know th- supposedly objective third party endorsements which aren't real the trust is for sale essentially yeah trust is for sale yeah yeah um it's it's a massive problem um and i would say out of my work um when i look back over the past decade the thing that i got so wrong was the reliance on reputation mechanisms and that, uh, you know, I, oh God, I said at the end of a TED speech, you know, uh, our reputation capital should become more powerful than our credit history or something like that. It's a stupid idea. Like now I cringe when I hear that. Um, and I cringe because, you know, talking of privilege, I was saying that as, as a, a white middle-class female. Um, so it's not just, the gaming of reputation in terms of fake reviews and buying reviews and and fraudulent reviews is actually discrimination is a huge problem. Yeah, but it can be more insidious than that, can't it, as well? I mean, you know, you talk about reputation capital, but I mean, that is essentially the driving force behind China's surveillance state, isn't it? The social credit system, which, you know, in one sense relies on distributed trust backed up by massive authoritarian control and i think in the book you sort of describe it as orwell's 1984 meets pavlov's dogs you know it's sort of black mirror level terrifying but that is a reputation capital system isn't it 
Yeah, I mean, for listeners that aren't familiar, um, China have what they call a social credit score, where all your behaviors, your online behaviors, everything from how much you gain to what you purchase, but all all the way through because of the camera surveillance system to uh, if you jaywalk. Um, or if you pay your bills late and you get this credit score that can impact everything from where your children go to school to your mortgage rates to whether you even have a job. Um, and oh God, I remember writing about this first for Wired uh, about eight years ago and the piece went viral in a way that we didn't expect. And I think it was because people were frightened. They recognized that this was, it's very easy to point the finger at China and to not actually go, how close are we to this at home? Um, and this is, you know, why I really have very strong feelings when we think we're going to fix trust issues through radical transparency. I think it's the worst possible answer to the crisis that we're in because, you know, radical transparency and surveillance, there is a very thin line there. Um, so when, you know, companies say, oh, I'm going to be transparent and then they like have insist on open calendars or they insist on even, you know, having surveillance cameras on people's computers so they can see where they're working. Well, that's not so far off the premise of the Chinese system. So I think we have to be really careful about the solutions that we find and latch onto to fix some of these really complex trust problems. So just to just to sort of pull at that and maybe just put a, a contrarian view so that we can pull at this a bit more, because I found what you just said absolutely fascinating. Um, in your research, do you find that people in China, for instance, feel more trust and faith in the institutions and their media and each other and business than we find, say, in the West? You know, how is how is their perception of trust? Because some would say, actually, I am willing in some ways to give up some of those freedoms for the fact that I can now have something I can trust again. Yes. Um, so I, I am not an expert on China. I'm going to say that. But from what I know and what I've studied, there is... I don't know if you call it higher faith or belief in institutions or that people don't question it, but it's really interesting. Um, I've only, well, actually I've received two teaching complaints, one we won't go into, but the one around China was interesting. This one was fascinating because it was a, a Chinese student I had, he was doing his MBA and we were doing a class on social credit scores and reputation. And he said that the ignorance of the class was very insulting because um, his grandparents, there was a dossier the government kept on them. And at least he had the visibility and in his words, the control to influence his score. So it was so culturally systemic, this you know, that the government would have visibility into your behaviors and that there would be a consequence to your behaviors and actions. Um, and that I was bringing, and he was absolutely right, that I was bringing a very Western lens to this, that this was a bad thing. When in fact, he saw this shift that now everything was sort of visible and digitized. He saw that as a really positive thing, which I think is really interesting and challenging. This seems to come out of what you're talking about in terms of how we adapt this to trust is turning the gaze back on ourselves a little bit because doesn't this also relate to i know you talk a lot in your work about uh, companies like airbnb and uber where you are rated as a consumer to force you to well i mean it, it makes you behave better but it also makes you accountable for what you do in in terms of how you operate within that company 
Yeah, and there's there's again there's positives and negatives to that. So the the most simple, I think I give this example in the book, like you know. Um, when I stay in a hotel, it's really weird. I'm very tidy at home, but I like, I trash the room. Like I'm really bad. I don't know why. It's like <laughs> something, I don't have my kids. It's like this freedom. Like it's just messy. When you say trash the room, we're obviously, I mean, we're not talking like in Led Zeppelin. No, <laughs> I know. It's going to sound really sad. Like I leave things everywhere. Right. So, and I'll leave towels on the floor. It's not, it's not great behavior. I'd never do that in an Airbnb. Because I know that my my current actions are going to influence my future ability on that platform. And this is what's really interesting. And this is why I think they're in their infancy. There is a degree of accountability that can create positive changes in behavior. But how do we balance that with the manipulation and, and also fraudulent activity that can then can happen with these systems? Yeah, because I mean, I mean, I guess we're sort of moving more into the the kind of the solution space now, and how do we unf ourselves? And and again, you know, you've mentioned it, but you you talk about trust leaps, you know, these big leaps of trust that that we're having to make uh, in many ways when we engage in these new platforms. And obviously, John took a big one when agreeing to do this podcast with us, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and having to climb the trust stack. So one trusty idea which was obviously a seriously funny podcast about the future, uh, to trust a platform. Well, you know, Michael, our producer, is inherently trustworthy. And third, to trust the other users. Uh, and for some inexplicable reason, John clearly just took a punt on us, although he does regularly get our names wrong. Uh, and, you know, if you look back, and the way you talk about it in the book is brilliant because we have made huge trust leaps about getting into cars with strangers and staying in strangers' homes that, you know, a decade or so ago would have felt really odd and quite bizarre, wouldn't they? That everyone would turn their spare room into a B&B um, and would happily, like, in blah, blah car, get in a car with a stranger when we've been told that hitchhiking was the most dangerous thing to do. How, how do we interrogate these trust leaps in order to make the right ones? So you mentioned two really big ideas. So one is a trust leap and the other one is a trust stack. Um, and I think out of sort of the... Co- I, I try to come up with these concepts that take these quite abstract, complex things and help people visualize them. And I think the trust leap is one of the most useful. So it's it's whenever you take a risk to do something new or to do something differently is a trust leap. And these could be enormous, as you point out, like getting in a self-driving car or staying in an Airbnb for the first time, but they can also be quite small things. And the interesting thing that you point out is like, when you first take a trust leap, it can feel really weird and risky and like you don't want to do it. There's a resistance there. But then when you've done it enough times or when millions of other people have done it and there's a social proof, you don't even think about it. It becomes normal behavior. So trust leaps really drive change. They're how innovation happens. And I find it fascinating that, you know, I do a lot of work with entrepreneurs and and business leaders and they often don't think that the reason why their product or their services failed is not because it's a, a bad idea. It's because people don't trust it. They're not ready to take that leap. So it's, it is, they are fascinating to study. Mm, actually to, to tie that into another one of the subjects we've covered on this um, podcast, which is energy. There's this lot of talk about, you know, how nuclear energy can deliver a lot of, you know, reduced carbon emissions. But as I keep pointing out to, you know, clients in that space, the problem is people just don't trust it. Well, you can, you can t- come back and say, we've made it as safe as you like. They're just like, no, I don't like it. It just smells wrong. But it is true, right? Like 
nuclear energy, you could tell people, tell the cows come home that it's safe. And we won't switch to it because we simply don't trust it. And, and that's because trust, I guess, is, is, is kind of an emotional thing, first and foremost. And it reminds me, I want to come on to this, because one of the things you talk about in, in your last TED talk is about how things like blockchain and cryptocurrency well, might, might be part of this problem. But one of the problems I have there is, is what we've just been talking about, is that I, I, when I talk to people in that space, I go, you're talking about the metaverse, talking about blockchain, talking about cryptocurrency, it, you make it completely impenetrable. It seems to be completely occupied by a bunch of uh, of geeks who can't actually, you know, can't order a drink without mentioning some kind of algorithm. And therefore, I just don't trust it at all. Well, that's the trust act, right? So what you're talking about there is it hasn't even got through the first layer, which is you don't understand the idea. So, um, and when you're really passionate, not even geeky, passionate about this space, you jump straight to the technology and the platform and, and you forget how you have to help people just to understand what the idea is. And is that part of the unfucking? Can you, because I, if I understand you correctly, you think that this might be part of the unfucking. So can you give us the idea? Um, I think part of the way out lies in the platform layer and what that really is and what that looks like. So I think our first attempt at platforms and disintermediation so taking power away from really large institutions and centralized systems, we really messed that up, which we, we were going to mess it up. Um, but how do we create these platforms that are truly new forms of empowerment, um, that are truly new forms of democratization, um, that really change access to education and finance and reinvent supply chains and the way value flows in the world. Um, I, I think we are in year diddly squat in terms of what that will look like in 100 years time. So I don't have the answer, but I do believe it, it does look somewhat like in taking this scale um, and I'm a huge, huge fan of Nicholas Tlaib's work um, and so much of what he says about um, that systems become so fragile, that ideas have a perfect state. And when you take them beyond that state, that you exceed that scale, you start to create problems. So I think a lot of this is changing the scale of systems and thinking completely differently about efficiency but that's that's not a, a two to three year solution that's like a 50 year solution um and and i think we need coming back to government that's the problem right and election cycles don't work that way so how do we completely reimagine the scale of systems and the flow of value i think is is a really there's a there's a lot of solutions in that yeah because that I mean, that comes back to your point doesn't it about the different trust shifts where we go from that sort of local eye contact handshake you know peer to peer trust which would happen in your community where you knew your bank manager and your gp face to face and they knew whether you were viable and as you say the kind of decay of institutional trust that we've discussed and then this new distributed trust which is obviously yeah again quite peer-to-peer -peer people focused but, but but mediated online and one of the examples that really struck me was which had a sort of optimistic note to it was was tala you know the sort of east african microfinance and loans and and you describe that as you know starting with the person, not the system, and built around empathy and fairness, and uh, and that seems to me the type of disintermediation that that has a lot of hope attached to it. 
Yeah, I mean, actually, we should get rid of the word disintermediation because it, it's, it, it's, it's that simple. <laughs> yeah, it's jargon, right? And decentralization and all those words. Um, start with the person, not the system. So if you were going to design education, health around people and what all kinds of people need, what would that look like? And we, we've lost that. So it sounds so simple, but it's about injecting humanness back into so many things it does require sort of a reorientation in what we value and where we place our time. And one of your other sort of more optimistic points is actually about how we become more discerning about how we deploy our trust, you know, and the notion of trustworthiness. I mean, you tell the incredible story of your family au pair, Doris, um, and about, you know, our ability to judge who deserves or who has earned our trust. I mean, how how do we how do our listeners become more discerning about how we deploy our our own trust so i think there are two things that we can all do in the world to really help this trust problem one is exactly that you're mentioning is that recognizing trust is ours to give i i go on about this all the time i hate the language of building trust because when you talk about building trust you assume that that leader has power over you but it's your choice where you give your trust to, whom you give your trust to. So slowing down and realizing that every day that you purchase something, every day that you click on something, every time that you read something, you are making a choice about whom and what to trust. And there is power in that. I know it sounds simple, but you can imagine like millions of micro actions where we're thinking more about who is trustworthy, whether they deserve our trust could create enormous changes. In our lives, we let convenience trump trust. You know, when we know that that driver really isn't paid fairly or those employees aren't treated well or they don't pay their fair share of taxes, I am guilty, don't, I'm not on my high horse about this. But if we want to complain about these companies, again, it is in our power to make different decisions in where we purchase things from. So that is big solution one that millions of these micro actions are thinking about is this person is this product is this company are they trustworthy do they deserve my trust could create enormous change yeah because it's like you know i think you're right we increasingly trust the mechanism but we perhaps don't trust the company behind it you know so we'll we'll get in an uber but we might like the smell of uber as a business because of its exploitation and 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 disenfranchisement of drivers yeah i mean amazon's you trust when you order something on Amazon it's going to arrive the next day. But if you really gave thought to the impact on local businesses, the impact, the environment, what goes on in their warehouses, like you probably make a different decision. Yeah. And I think the other, the other thing that I like about that is the idea of the, the trust pause as well. I mean, you talk about that as like that sort of tackling the runaway speed of trust with that kind of judicious hesitancy about, about how we give our trust. Yeah, a trust person. And as I say, I'm a hypocrite because I still order things from Amazon. But if I have a choice and I think more about, oh, there's a birthday in two weeks time, I should go to the local, local bookstore or toy shop. It, you know, these are small things, but they can make a difference. I kind of want to push back on this because, you know, we kind of all get that conceptually, but but almost nobody does it. That's why Amazon is so huge. That When you said convenience trumps trust, I think you said, um, that really kind of went to my heart and I thought oh my goodness that's it how do we make trust as convenient real trust as convenient as as Amazon oh I don't know I mean 
you could argue that there was there was naivety in my answer or that wishful thinking because you know what you're talking about is self-interest right and I don't know how to rewire self-interest um I think though perhaps a silver lining of the pandemic is a realization of what happens when trust disappears the social dysfunction, the health consequences, and that we we have to be more conscious of this, even thinking about trust as, as one of the highest and most valuable resources that we have. I don't think most that crosses most people's minds. Mm, I mean, perhaps it's because we've all grown up in, in this world where everything's become super convenient and the sort of the, the assumptions of capitalism, which is all about individual freedoms and whatever. You know, I can't actually remember much of a time in, a, in my education, whether it was at school or, or in, in higher education, where we talked very much about the concept of trust at all. Um, it was never a, a discussion. So maybe there's, there's, a, there's a curriculum item, which is the nature of trust and integrity and how that manifests in, in our world. And if we all thought a bit more about that, then the world would probably be a lot different. Well, you're, and the interesting thing about school is, again, they jump to, when you look at the curriculum, it jumps to sort of the application or the outcome of these things, right? So they'll do a whole course on digital misinformation or, or on online bullying. And yeah, those things are important. But, and you are starting to see this in, in schools, but from the age of four, if you, people are starting to talk to you about values like humility and integrity and concepts like trust, you'd start to think differently about them or they'd be part of your vernacular or part of your way of thinking. I'm a bit, a bit worried about our host, John. John, are you having a little personal trust crisis there <laughs> by yourself? No, I'm not. I'm listening intently. I'm very aware that we've all talked about optimism and I'm trying to think of an optimistic point to end on and I can't find one and that explains my silence. Uh-huh. Well, I think, um, I think there is an optimistic point to end on, if I may which is, uh, I think, something that Rachel's been saying all the way through. And it's something I think that's embodied in actually in, in a good comedian like yourself, John, which is actually you describe trust as, as being confident you know, in the unknown or, or, or being confident in not knowing or not being certain. And um, the way that people make you confident about that is when they, they exhibit, I guess, a certain amount of humility, saying, I don't know, a certain amount of ability to say I'm, I got that wrong in fact you were brilliant earlier when you said you know I ended one of my TED talks and now I look, I look at it and I sort of feel cringy about how I ended it because you know I've, I've questioned that so so it, it, it's actually being curious about the world and questioning and humble which is kind of what we, we try and do on this podcast that is probably the answer our own personal answer to this trust crisis yeah I mean it, it's funny because I always say like if I hadn't started writing about trust I would have really committed to the joy of being wrong like that would have become my mission um and i think you know the book celebration three. book three you no know, the celebration of failure is, is really important but you know every time my kids say i don't know i'm not sure i was wrong like that's when i'm proud of them and you know i always say this thing like you can feel people who have humility because they are on a journey. And this is an optimistic note to end on because I think what is happening is that cultures, particularly corporate cultures, are starting to realize that this overconfident, assertive arrogance is an endpoint in thinking. You know, every time I'm wrong, I have no issue in saying that I got things wrong. I've learned something. It's discovery. Nothing new was discovered in the known. 
So if we want to find new solutions to these things, we do need the humility to admit that we got it wrong and to really be comfortable in the unknown. Mm. And indeed, that ties to, I think, great leadership. Leaders shouldn't be sitting there saying it's all going to be all right. You know, climate change, for instance, is going to be this nice, easy ride. You know, they should be saying, well, it's going to be a bit of a shit share. We don't know how well it's going to go. And it's going to be really difficult at times because when those times happen, you're like, they were humble enough to say, I don't know. But so now you will trust them. So so that ability to say you are wrong is absolutely a leadership skill. Yet we, we seem to perceive that anybody who says that, the, the media instantly limped on anybody who says they're wrong as if they're some kind of idiot, whereas actually what they're really showing is, is strong leadership skills by admitting they were wrong. 100%. And I think, you know, we would have trusted more what came out of COP if there was this sense that there weren't, well, they didn't have all the answers. And so this this prize on certainty where there isn't certainty is a huge problem. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I that was a sense I had finishing your book was like, you know, trust is how we navigate the uncertainty to come. Uh, and the more that trust is debilitated, the more difficult the navigation of that uncertainty becomes. 100%. See, there you go. You're ready to teach. <laughs> <laughs> I was wrong to say that I couldn't find an optimistic end to this podcast. And all I had to do was be brave enough to say that I didn't know how to do it. And exactly. you three have done it wonderfully. So may I thank you all. It's been a pleasure. That was a that was a much more intense conversation than, as I say, I was prepared for. There was a moment when we were discussing trust and uh, how our trust has changed, and how we fundamentally don't trust governments, but we vote for them, and we don't trust Uber, but we use it, and we don't trust Amazon, but we use it. That I level with you, I got a little bit depressed. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's really tough, but I mean, I think the overriding thing that I take out of that is that humility piece that Rachel kept sort of circling back to, which I know is difficult in our sort of arrogant and hubristic world. But, you know, the very fact that all of that defensiveness and disengagement and disenchantment is what is driving distrust uh, and that we have to have, you know, this more confident relationship with what we don't know. Um, I, I felt that sort of humility thread was really, really powerful and that, and that trustworthiness ultimately comes down to capability and character. and. Um, I mean, hopefully our, our, our listeners trust us uh, and that we can demonstrate a bit of that, that humbleness. Mm. But I, 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 it's a huge challenge. There's no doubt about that. And I think Rachel really, really stretched our collective perceptions of, uh, of what trust is, how vital it is, and also how we can start to not resurrect it, but um, reconnect it because it is all about relationship. Well, I was just thinking about that when it comes to comedians as well, John, because one of the things that you find when um, comedians particularly stand-ups go on stage, they often talk about, you know, um, being curious about things, you know, whether it's how people stack a dishwasher or, you know, being humble about like how they've fucked up various things in their lives and, and they make humour out of that. And, and is that one of the reasons that comedians are able to uh, be trusted? Because actually you, you go into a room where somebody quite often, um, it's one of the hallmarks of stand-up, is, is this kind of a, a kind of a bizarre and strange look at the world, a curiosity that's also tied to quite a lot of, you know, personal reflection on, on, on your own failings. Is that part of the trust that you have with your audience? Yes, I think you're exactly right. And while you were talking about that, I, I wanted to make a joke while Rachel was here about how, you know, 
whilst you were saying that weakness is where you learn and you know it's it's our inability to understand certain things that makes us trust each other i wanted to say oh brilliant well i'm part of that solution then and then i realized that my on-stage persona is actually very smug and arrogant and is all about i'm the only one who does know how to do things like load the dishwasher <laughs> so then i got even more depressed because i thought i'm actually part of the problem and i'm a real piece of shit but i think in terms of what you ask about comedy in general I think you are right. And it's not just, you know, your own shortcomings as comedy. I think it is that broad shrugging of the shoulders that good comedy makes bad things funny. And it takes that general frustration we have that, you know, it's not just about government or anything like that. It's about a comedian walking on stage and going, isn't everything an absolute fucking nightmare? <laughs> and that's such welcoming company at this point and then to to come out and have that as your standpoint and have laughed for two hours which is what happens when you go and see a good comic on tour i think you're exactly right that that's what makes comedy magnificent and whilst i may not be part of that group that makes people feel better i think i make people feel broadly anxious and i think they come away from my shows worrying not just about the state of the world but me uh mentally (laughs) what i will offer is this uh from karen friendly and provided good communication the perfect guest Hayley, great guest. Welcome anytime. Sarah, perfect guest. A real pleasure to host them again. These are some of my Airbnb reviews. Um, so whilst I might not be part of the solution comedically, I am uh, I'm a wonderful Airbnb guest, and that gets me into our topic somewhat. Although, again, while we were talking, I remembered our episode on tourism, and I know I shouldn't be using Airbnb because they disrupt local economies. <laughs> you can please all of the people some of the time, John. Yeah, it's hard being alive, isn't it? Now, I've <laughs> I've owned up to certain shortcomings, and that leads us nicely to the confessional booth. Um, so uh, you send in your earthly confessions. This one's slightly different. Uh, I think I know how you're going to respond, both of you, to this one. It comes from Ben in Epsom. He tells us he's 37 years old, um, if that helps you at all opens as as i've told people to open love the podcast Uh, i've been trying to spread the word far and wide however i do have a confession and his confession is i've been cheating on you to maintain an open mind and unguarded approach to learning i've been listening to other podcasts one of the other podcasts includes a conversation with dr bjorn lomberg Mm. sounds like a nice guy Oh. (laughs) oh i'm so excited so I think we already know the answer, but for the listener, I'll complete Ben's email. He sounds like a nice guy doing some important work and some of the less sexy areas of world issues. Good for him. However, he espouses the idea that the global climate catastrophe is not as bad as it's being made out to be and that this is backed up with, quote unquote, the data. Having just listened to your interview with Jane Davidson, I feel confused. Jane spoke eloquently and emphatically about the importance of future-proofing the planet. Forgive my mangling of a quote, but if the brain decides what the heart has already chosen, where should my heart be? Should I be fighting for the future my children deserve, or should I listen to what Dr. Lomberg suggests and assume that things aren't as bad as all that? Yeah. What do you think, gents? Tens of thousands of global scientists are wrong, and Dr. Bjorn Lomberg is right. No, he's a Panglossian contrarian who makes a good living out of uh, opposing arguments i don't have a lot of time for him i would be i would have a more nuanced view that, that makes a change 
<laughs> now, I mean, so so uh, what Lombard is basically saying is there's all sorts of different problems out there, including you know poverty, inequality, and whatever, and climate change is one of them. And uh, you know how do you account for the value of each and how much money we should spend on them? And then he has a very particular view that we should be spending more of our money on some things and not so much on climate change um, because of the way he's basically accounted for it. And the fundamental problem here is that if you ask an economist to look at systemic problems, they will always come up with some way of, of putting figures against it. Now, he's come up with, you know, the, these things we've often talked about, discount rates, whatever, that largely completely disagree with what most um, people who are really interested in climate would. So he basically, he's he's not saying that climate change doesn't exist and that it isn't a big problem. He's just saying it should be, you know, uh, further down the shopping list than some other things. And I think for me, what he fails to do is kind of see the interrelatedness of all those problems and how actually at the very bottom of them is the, the climate problem because that's the operating system uh, that if that goes, we won't be able to fix any of the other problems. So I think, you know, he's a, a particular economist with a particular view and this is why he should, should not really... Um, be trusting economists to guide guide policy because as Jane brilliantly said in her interview that if you look at the roots of the words you know economy is about management of the home but ecology is about knowledge of it and whilst he might have some views on how to manage it I suspect he's not a particularly good ecologist and that's probably where the the problem lies and probably where uh, our listener whose name I've forgotten what was his name Barry Jeff John you must get names right, Mark. I can't keep telling you it's very important and it's disrespectful to the listener if you don't get their name right. It's Ben from Epsom and he's 37 okay, years so old. That's where Ben from Epsom, I think, is probably having that struggle because you list, um, and back to what Rachel was just saying, you know, he sounds very trustworthy, he has some, you know, some kind of authority or whatever. So actually what Ben's done there is rather brilliantly tied together a whole bunch of themes in this uh, in this podcast series and has allowed us, I think, to demonstrate that, um, you know, you can be curious, you can be humble, you can have all sorts of different points of view, but really you've got to take all of them um, in the round and you've got to look at, at people's integrity about where they're going and, and, and knowing where they can be wrong. And I think part of Lomberg's problem is that he's very convinced of his own system, um, uh, although he has, you know, become less and less uh, stringent about his um, objection to dealing with, with with climate change in the way that many other people do. So even he is moving perhaps in the right direction. But I think it's good that Ben's listening to lots of different points of view. Economists that are ecologists are dangerous in my in my belief. Wonderful answers on Dr. Lomberg. I appreciated your nuance and your generosity, Mark. I loved the brevity and clarity of Ed's answer as well. <laughs> Quickly to Ben then, and his confession is that he's been listening to other podcasts. Is that something you, you would endorse? I do. I, I, I mean, you know, you do another three or four, don't you, John? Ed does another one. Oh, yeah, one. but I don't listen to him. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. I can't stand my own work. Um, Ed? <laughs> um, I think it's fine to, to play away from home on podcasts. You know, you're, you should share your ears widely in order to get those divergent opinions and perspectives. So I don't think it should be cons construed as cheating on us or being uh, practicing infidelity against the kind of the future noughts and our revelatory book. So yeah, Ben, keep your ears open and keep listening. But also, did he also knows that when he comes back here, it's like, oh, this is the real deal. You know, that, yeah, having, having listened to other people, yeah. I now feel, you know, even more held and stroked and warmed yes. by John and the boys. Exactly. You can go out for a cheap burger or you can come home for a nice vegan plant-based <laughs> steak. <laughs> 
So there you go. Send your confessions in. And moreover, we will be back next week for episode eight, which will be our festive finale to the year before a short break. So we will be reviewing the year. We'll be talking about COP26. We'll be talking about where we're at with the pandemic. We'll be talking about, no doubt, other issues that haven't taken prominence while we've been talking about COP26 and the pandemic. And most importantly, I will be putting your questions, whatever they may be, to Mark and Ed. So send in your questions for our festive finale here's how you can do that you can reach us by email at hello at john and the that's hello at john j-o-n and the future noughts all one word dot com we have our own show twitter account which is at j and the f and of course you can reach us individually on twitter too i am at ron Richardson, john richardson with the first letter swapped around that's what i've done there and you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. Thank you for your company as ever. I hope you've enjoyed this show. Thank you to Rachel for joining us. And massive thank you, as always, for the people who make me look like I have some semblance of intelligence and rationality and that I'm part of the future and not an increasingly balding and podgy white male comedian who is no longer needed. Thank you to Mark and Ed. <laughs> thank you. Jane and Michaela, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>